LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is the next big idea. Today, the future of life. I'm here with my producer, Caleb. How are you, Caleb? I'm good, Rufus. I'm busy. I've been busy. Yes, you have been busy, Caleb. That's exactly why I wanted to chat with you today. For the past few months, you've been working on a project that we've been gestating for some months now. We're really excited about it, and it's finally ready to see the light of day. Yeah, that's right. So so we're about to launch our first ever Next Big Idea original, which is a short form audiobook that that really combines the conversational energy of a podcast and the clear takeaways of a book. So you're going to get some of the bells and whistles that you get in a podcast. There's archival footage, there's interviews, there's music, but there's also the quality of writing and thinking that you find in a book from a great author. I love it. And the first one that we're launching with is by an author who longtime listeners in this show will recognize guy named Steven Johnson. It's called Immortality, A User's Guide. And it's really about the scientific breakthroughs happening right now that may result in the radical extension of human life. This is a sequel, effectively, to Stephen's last book, Extra Life, which was about the doubling of the human lifespan in the last century. And the question is, can we do it again? There's extraordinary science coming along. And of course, it's a complicated topic. People start living to 120 or 150. As Stephen points out, there will be unintended consequences, like upending the working world, family structures, welfare programs like Social Security and Medicare. Yeah, I mean, and you also have to ask, like, if one day we have drugs that could help you live to 200, who's going to have access to them, right? Like, are we going to be inhabiting a world where the rich can live forever and everyone else is dying young? So Stephen gets into all of that in the book. It's really, really interesting. Immortality, a user's guide, will be available starting Tuesday on the Next Big Idea app. You can also purchase it right now by going to nextbigideaclub.supportingcast.fm. There's a link in the episode notes. We put a lot of love into this thing, and it's the first in a series. So if you like it, well, good news. We have another original coming soon that's hosted by best-selling author Nir Eyal. So today's episode is kind of a sneak peek at immortality, but in an unusual fashion. So we got Stephen to sit down with another acclaimed science writer, a guy named Michael Spector. He writes for The New Yorker. And as it happens, he also recently published an original audiobook with our friends at Pushkin. And there are a lot of parallels to, to Immortality, a user's guide. Michael's book is called Higher Animals, Vaccines, Synthetic Biology, and the Future of Life. This is one of my favorite topics. The human species has been evolving in a fight to stay alive, as you know, Caleb, for hundreds of thousands of years. We've been building immune systems, fighting pathogens, cancer. And we've been doing this through a process of natural selection, a slow and cumbersome process. And now we're at this extraordinary inflection point where we're becoming the authors of our evolution. As Michael Spector says in Higher Animals, 
advances in synthetic biology are in the process of enabling us to create highly personalized cancer treatments, energy sources we can grow, new biodegradable materials. Totally. And as Stephen says in Immortality, this same revolution may make it possible to substantially extend the human lifespan. And the human health span. Mm -hmm. This new longevity science isn't just about being in your 90s for three decades, which I know a lot of people worry about. It's about potentially living a much healthier and more vibrant and, yes, extended old age. So today, you're going to hear from Michael and Stephen. They had a great, wide-ranging conversation. They talked about mRNA and CRISPR. They talked about the feasibility of radical life extension. They even got into the surprising role that AI could play in improving health outcomes long-term. I loved Michael's new audiobook, and I love Stephen's too. So when we come back, a conversation between Michael Spector and Stephen Johnson. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Michael, it's good to see you and talk to you again. You too. It's It's been a while and it's a pleasure. So it's so excited to to talk about your new project, Higher Animals, and uh, the, some really interesting overlap with what I've been working on with this immortality project. And I just thought we could begin with this shared interest that you and I have, which is smallpox. <laughs> yeah, we, we do both have that obsession. <laughs> it's not, it, you know, it's nice to be able to talk to someone about this because at cocktail parties, I find that people generally are less inclined to have that big smallpox conversation. But you have this <laughs> wonderful uh, and gripping and kind of terrifying opening sequence um, in Higher Animals that, that begins with smallpox outbreak in New York in 1947. Um, so tell me like wh- how you got to that, wh- why that's the opening frame, and, and, and maybe get into a little bit of what Higher Animals is trying to, to address. This book is about the evolution of biology from something you kind of did in the lab with test tubes to something that is a digital piece of information that whips around the world. And I'm trying to talk about the power of various things. And smallpox is about as powerful a virus as one can ever imagine. And it turned out that in 1947, we had an amazing final smallpox scare in the United States, years after we thought it no, it wasn't eradicated at that point, but we didn't really consider it a big problem. A guy got on a bus in Mexico City to come up north. He's actually going to Maine, but he got so sick, he got off in the most populous city in the world. And He got sicker and sicker, checked in the hospital. Nobody could figure it out. He died. Other people got infected, and they did tests, and they eventually realized about a week, 10 days later, that it was smallpox. Smallpox is highly contagious and lethal. So suddenly, New York City was confronted with a, we have a lethal pandemic on our hands, and if we don't vaccinate people, all hell is going to break loose. I mean, you can't think of a better opportunity for smallpox to do some damage than to show up in a city like New York where everyone gets on the subway and mingles 
And where the virus, by the way, isn't immediately apparent, it takes a while before you know you have it. So the health commissioner basically assembled a bunch of dedicated people to vaccinate the city. And they were racing against time, and they managed to vaccinate the entire city of New York in three weeks. Six and a half of like eight million people were vaccinated in the first 20 days. In the end, three people died, 11 got sick in a city of millions. And had that been anywhere else, had they reacted in any other way, it would have been incredibly devastating. And the idea, I mean, there's a lot of things going on there. One is, oh my God, we actually lived in a world where a bunch of people in white coats could say, we have a problem and we have a solution. Would you like to have the solution? And everyone was like, yes. They stood in line all night. You got vaccinated everywhere, at clinics, at symphony halls, at gymnasiums. And it worked. It worked. And it was sort of the last smallpox scare in this country. And it was also kind of the last of a kind of pandemic mm -hmm. because we obviously have experienced other pandemics and will experience other pandemics. But that was the type of pandemic that we really couldn't foresee. We didn't know how to prepare. And yet we managed to confront it and, and in some ways confront it better than we do today. You know, the analogy I always use is think about, you know, what percentage of school kids know that we landed on the moon and, and what percentage know that we eradicated smallpox and, and which, which is more important to your life? Like what had right. more material impact on the quality and the length of human life? Obviously it's smallpox. And, and so part of, you know, I, and one of the shared things that you and I have, you know, over the course of our careers is trying to figure out ways to tell compelling stories yeah. about these achievements and to remind people like, yeah, look, there's progress coming out of Silicon Valley and other places like this, but there's also the progress of just like field workers vaccinating people, ring vaccinating yeah. people in the developing world to eradicate this like ancient killer. And we need to we need to figure out ways to make those stories more compelling because it's such an, you know, an important part of what what drives us forward. I basically say in the book, and I believe pretty strongly that the the COVID pandemic will be forgotten at some point, but it will have been the thing that gave us mRNA vaccines. And that will end up doing for synthetic biology what the Cold War did for the microchip. And what I mean by that is I have spent 30 years writing about things like GMOs and listening to intelligent people lose their brains over a perfectly safe thing that they could swallow because it isn't natural. But we have now administered 14 billion COVID vaccines. And people are, you know, there are always going to be antis, but mostly people want that thing that they downloaded from the internet and made in a lab because it protects them. So that is a story that at least makes life understandable for people. But I kind of want to move back because I'm interested in your long life scenario. And you managed to find this woman. It's like a crazy story. I mean, it's crazy in two ways that she lives so long. And also the the little, you can yeah describe <laughs> it, but yeah. So basically, I got to this immortality project as a kind of follow on to extra life. So extra life had really looked at like how we had basically defeated a series of 
diseases and other public health threats, you know, cleaning up the drinking water supply, pasteurization, things like that that were killing people, keeping them from living a full life. What I only alluded to a little bit at the end of that book was the idea that we might be able to actually start thinking about addressing the, the kind of the aging process itself and perhaps push the, the outer boundaries of how old people could live. And that's where, you know, in part because of some of the scientific breakthroughs that you talk about, you know, we're, we're potentially right on the edge of that. And I think there's just a whole host of consequences of radical life extension that we need to think through as a society. And so I wanted to kind of do a kind of an epilogue in a way that that addressed those issues. But I started with this story that I've been sitting on for forever. I mean, other people have said it, talked about it. It's not like I discovered it, but it's just one of my favorite stories of all time. So there was a, a woman in France who had been born at the, uh, you know, something like 1870 or something. Yeah, 1870 something. And uh, had apparently overlapped with Vincent van Gogh in, in her childhood. And at some point it, late in her life when she was, you know, in her kind of early 90s, she does this deal, this real estate transaction um, that is common in, in France and maybe in the United States as well, where if, if you have no descendants and you have a nice piece of real estate, she had a nice apartment in Arles, the French town, you can basically do this thing, it's called, it's called for life, where basically someone uh, agrees to pay you a monthly stipend, you get to stay in your apartment for the rest of your life, but when you die, the person you've done the deal with gets the apartment free and clear. So this guy finds this 90-year-old woman with a fantastic apartment and no descendants and is like, oh, great, I I'm going to do a fertile-life deal with her. She ends up being, her name was Jeanne Comon, the longest living person, <laughs> in, as far as we know, in the history of the world. <laughs> like, she really lives to, bad like, luck for that guy. <laughs> she lives to 122, and she outlives him. She outlives the guy she did the deal with, and the ultimate you know, kind of dark irony of this is that his descendants had to continue paying her pension while she lived on it. So she was interviewed by the French press at the end of this, and she just said, sometimes in life, one makes bad deals. Um, yeah, no <laughs> so, but what's interesting about this is she died in the, in the 90s. I mean, it's crazy to think she was born in the age of Vincent van Gogh, and she lived to see the fall of the Berlin Wall and the rise of the World Wide Web. I mean, it's just, it doesn't kind of make sense conceptually, but it, it was the reality of her life. However, we believe that since then, in the 25 years or so that have passed since she died, as far as we know, nobody's lived longer than she has. So overall, life expectancy has greatly increased. The number of people living into the hundreds, that's the fastest growing age demographic in the United States, according to some studies. But people are not passing what I call in the book the common boundary, like that 120-year right. period. And the question is whether now thanks to these new kind of breakthroughs and thanks to fundamentally this revolution that, that both of us are really interested in, which is transforming biology into an information science, whether or not it may well be possible for us to push past that common boundary and live into our 140s and our 150s and actually do it as a relatively healthy person in full command of our faculties and not like a zombie. <laughs> That is the key thing. I mean, I, I'm really interested in this. And in fact, we were talking about this in my, one of my classes at MIT. And the students surprised me by saying, we just like to live a certain amount of years and die like normal people. You know, my mom is in her 90s. She doesn't know she's around. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, if I couldn't read or talk or communicate or, you know, make whatever choices you wish, 
I say I'm done. So the key thing is, can these technologies get us longer and better? And and I have to say, and you brought this up in, in your in your writing and in your talking, I get a little queasy with the Silicon Valley guys in the living forever. It's sort of, to my mind, like, I love George Church, but his attempt to bring the woolly mammoth back. <laughs> eh. Now, right. I will say this about those technologies. I think a lot of these we want to live forever technologies will help people with diseases. We're now seeing really difficult scientific problems, almost impossible scientific problems, being addressed because information is biology now. And it's a very exciting time. So I'm not anti, but I do, I do worry that we don't ever really think about what comes along with these amazing advances. Yeah, there's so much to say. And, and I want to dive into the science a little bit more um, because there's, there's a lot of interesting yeah. things there that intersect with what happened with the mRNA vaccines. Um, but just to stay on the kind of societal point of view on all of this. Yeah, you're right. I mean, when, when people take surveys and they're asked about, you know, radical life extension, what they generally the response from people is, I would like to be perfectly healthy until I'm 100 and then die in my sleep. Like, I don't yeah. want to live, you know, for 150 years, I, but I would like to be healthy. And that's, you know, the kind of the technical term for this is health span versus lifespan. So lifespan is yeah. how long you live. Health span is like how long you really are fundamentally, at, you know, at not full capacity, but, you know, close well, to that. you can do a, have a you life. Can, yeah, you have a life. And, and, you know, in some ways we've gotten, you know, we've clearly gotten better at lifespan extension, although not in the last three or four years in the United States, which is a whole other yeah. question. But in some cases that's keeping people alive who are really not at full yeah. capacity and and probably are not in some cases enjoying the life that they're continuing to live longer. But as you allude to, the fundamental breakthrough here, this kind of complex of breakthroughs that that seems to be developing around radical life extension is fundamentally about health span. It's about mm -hmm. kind of stopping the aging process, um, right. which then outputs a longer life. But it also means that at 70 or 80 or 90, you are not on this kind of downward slope and you you do have more of your full capacities. And that it's hard to turn away from that. I think that's the thing. No, and I think we take it for granted. I mean, I've said this in talks, but, you know, my grandfather died when he was 66. He died of a heart attack. When he died, everyone was sad. Nobody said, oh, my God, right. he went so young because yeah. it was 60 yeah. years ago. I'm 68. And if I die tomorrow, I hope at least some people will say, what? You know, yeah, yeah, it's too soon. Yeah, among among many other things that they'll say. <laughs> That's a couple generations we've gone from. It's totally normal to die in your mid sixties to, if you get to your mid sixties without having a big ticket cancer or something like that, you're probably going to live a lot longer. Yeah, you can just see it. I mean, I always find this so fascinating. It's just like look at pictures of people from the forties or fifties. And guess their age. And part of this is part of this is cigarettes. Actually, is smoking yeah. just ages people tremendously. But, um, but yeah, you you look at people and be like, oh well, they're obviously like seventy five, and it's like, nope, they're fifty five. <laughs> you know, it's just like you could see the wear and tear of of what it was like to be alive fifty or sixty years ago compared to where we are now. So that has has certainly changed. The other thing that I think is so there's a there's a really fascinating kind of philosophical question here and, and a scientific question, which is, which is why do we age? 
So there's there's this kind of amazing period in development that I, I didn't appreciate enough, nearly nearly enough when I was living through it, which is basically from from when you're about 20 to when you're about 30 or mid 30s, you've stopped growing, but you don't age. You, you There's a, a long period of time where you you really don't change in any way. And then the aging process generally for most people starts to kick in in their kind of in their 30s, subtly at first and then <laughs> gradually and then all of a sudden, as everybody said. But that period where you're not aging is a really fascinating mystery. Like why don't you age in that period? And there was historically this kind of assumption that aging was just kind of entropy. Like that, you know, <laughs> things fall apart, your, you know, your cells are bombarded with solar radiation and they're transcription mutations that are happening. And so, you know, eventually those just stack up and you start to age, but it's happening yep. all the time. And what we started to realize, and again, this is this is the information science of it all, is that actually during that period from 20 to 35 or whatever, that entropy is happening. Those, you know, transcription mistakes are happening on the level of DNA, but they're being repaired. And the body is going through, you have a whole kind of regulatory system, I call it in, in immortality, the, the repair squad. It is yeah. just fixing all these things for you and you know, doing it incredibly well. And so when that little stretch of DNA gets mangled, it, it gets repaired. And when a, a red blood cell starts expressing genes that actually should be in a muscle cell, that gets fixed as well. And then for some reason, somewhere around the age of 35, the repair squad kind of stops showing up for work. Yeah, they don't They don't get paid enough or something. <laughs> right. But the thing about the repair squad that amazes me is we are now in an era where we can sort of bolster the repair squad. Yeah. We can fix broken things. We can send them to cellular parts of our body. And we're going to have opportunities. I think we're going to start to see this with a bunch of cancers and other infectious diseases. But then it's going to go into things like aging and more subtle but profound changes, there's nothing, you know, we can write DNA, we can read DNA, we can rewrite DNA, we can print DNA. And that is a revolutionary change that I'm not really sure people can even get their head around. I'm not sure I can get my head around it. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like, I was thinking about this yesterday, that everything that we've seen over the last six months with AI, where there's kind of this sudden, oh my gosh, we're, we've we've created machines that seem to have mastered language and intelligence yeah. on some early level. Like, this is a big deal, and it, but it's been in the works for 50 years. I feel like this is just a preview of what's going to happen when people really start to recognize what's happening with the, the science of life. So I've been working on a long piece for The New Yorker about DeepMind, this AI company in London, and they solved a problem called protein folding. And proteins fold in a millisecond, and we need proteins for everything we do in life. There's no, you can't breathe, blood doesn't go around, you can't contract a muscle or digest food. No living thing can live without proteins. And somehow you need them to fold in incredibly complex ways. So people have been trying to figure out how that happens so they can say, well, that's misfolding, and if we fix it, we can intervene in this disease or we can do it. No one could do it. And Deep Mind, Demis Hassapa said, Deep Mind's like, we're going to fix this with AI. And people laughed. And they did. And they've published 200 million proteins. And they're accurate to the atom. And that kind of magic 
is not something people talk about when they talk about AI. They're just worried about, you know, when is AI going to let loose the dogs of war? I think it would be nice if there were movies in which AI wasn't either Star Wars or dystopian because it's all extremes. And, you know, as I say, AI is an extension of us and we have to be careful because we can do some really stupid things. But I tend to think people are losing their mind a little too much too quickly. (laughs) Well, we could do a whole other conversation on AI. But, you know, the thing I keep thinking about when you think about the transition of of the life sciences and biology to information sciences is that what that means is that they are suddenly writing the the express train of Moore's law. So all yeah. of the crazy advances that we've seen in computing just when, when computation like doubles every year, yeah. uh, you know, for the same cost or half the cost that that takes us from, you know, I can <laughs> I can maybe like use a word processor on a tiny little screen to I have a supercomputer in my pocket. Right. You you, you apply that then to the science of life Biology. and and you get just extraordinary results, but that was not something we, the first place we really saw that was in gene sequencing, where you when it took us, it cost us two billion dollars to sequence one human genome, and, yeah. <laughs> and now it costs us a hundred dollars. Yeah, and you can do it in five seconds. George yeah. Church, who's a brilliant man, got a PhD by sequencing part of one gene in a year and a half. Right. It wouldn't take a second to do that yeah. now, and. That brings us to something that biology or information technology can do, which is, I don't know of a technology we have ever developed as humans that we have chosen not to use, but we're going to have to start thinking a lot more carefully in the future about what technologies we want to use when it comes to the life sciences. Because, yeah, it's great. We We can make nucleic acid vaccines super fast and all around, and we can defeat all sorts of viruses. You do not have to be a genius to realize if you can do that, you can make something really bad. And if I make a terrible virus based on a sequence which is out there, I can email it to someone in Malaysia or Boston or wherever in two seconds. And that is something that we need to think about because it's a pro- you know it's not the case that many people are going to want to do harm, but it doesn't take many. You know, I keep wondering what would the Unabomber be doing today. And I don't think he'd be blowing up a few professors. I think he'd be making terrible viruses and then flying around infecting people with them. Yeah, I, I actually just wrote this piece for the Times Magazine about this guy, Thomas Midgley Jr., who yeah. simultaneously invented uh, leaded gasoline and uh, Freon, which had involved the CFCs that caused a hole in, hole in the ozone layer. And arguably no single human being did more damage to the environment, all with the best of intentions, like as an innovator. But I kind of ended that piece by saying, like, look, Midgley's inventions took a huge industrial apparatus to get them out in the world. You needed fast corporations to sell leaded gasoline all over the world to do that. But when you're working with self-replicating objects that make copies of themselves, um, you don't need that infrastructure. You can just be one rogue malevolent scientist in a lab and, you know, go forth and multiply with your creation and and you can do enormous damage. And that's that's the world we're kind of creeping into. And I, I think we're rushing into it needlessly because for one thing, you know, nuclear weapons are regulated. There are treaties. There are approaches. You don't go on the internet and see a lot of recipes for nuclear weapons. Even if you did, they're not easy to make. They take a lot of money. 
You name a virus, you name any horrible virus that exists, and I can download it for you. I can download the sequence, the directions to make it in one second. There's a whole official database of viruses out there. And every time we find a new one, you know, when the 1918 flu virus was brought back from the Arctic to be studied, one man was allowed to work on it at CDC in an incredibly tight, restrictive environment. You know what they did with the sequence of that? They mm. published it in Science Magazine the next year. I mean, it's anyone can download it. And again, was that a problem a while ago? No. But as we get to the point where 10-year-olds on their laptops are going to be able to make organisms, we need to think a little more carefully about these things. So that's one of the things that we've been jointly interested in, particularly in these last two projects and Higher Animals and in Immortality, a user's guide, as it's called, <laughs> somewhat misleadingly. Um, no, and in some, way, in some ways, a user's guide is the right phrase because one of the things I was trying to do in that book, particularly at the end, is deal with this question of like, what should we feel about these advances? And who is it up to to decide what should be allowed? What should we pursue? What should we not pursue? Or how should we? you know, put guardrails around these things. And this is true for synthetic biology and, you know, potentially unleashing catastrophic viruses that we've engineered. And it's true for tinkering with the edges of immortality, right? These are questions yeah. that are scientifically very complex ones, but almost everyone has a stake in the results. And yeah. the problem with our current system, and this is something I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, and I don't fully have an answer, so I'd love to hear what you think. But we don't have a good mechanism for widening the pool of stakeholders who right. get to shape this. Right now, what gets built is what is possible. And yes. and it's being driven by technology. It's being driven by Silicon Valley. It's being driven by the, the envelope of possibility that expands with scientific advances. But the stakes are really high with these things and yeah. and more of us They're should very... be able to contribute to the conversation i think but but i don't know what the mechanism is for that so kevin Esfeld and i teach a course at mit called safeguarding the future where we talk about existential Ooh, threats. i want to take that class how do i uh, we'd we... love for you to visit but mostly at the end of class i usually have to look at all the students and say if anyone feels like they need to go jump in the charles river can they right. please see me first right. because there are some difficult issues. However, there are guardrails. I mean, if you look at synthetic biology, we can put barcodes into genes. Mm. We can put watermarks. There are watermarks in U.S. currency, and they actually kind of work against forgers. We can do that with DNA. We can, you know, George Church has said, why not make sure that people who are able to buy DNA have a license? You could drive a car, but you need a license, but you can make a virus just by ordering stuff on the internet. There are also things we can do to protect ourselves should someone do the awful thing. One of them is we can se sequence the wastewater constantly mm. at every important port in the world. And that's a few hundred ports, and that's 10 billion bucks a year to do that. And then what you'd see is if something's changing exponentially, you would know you had a problem. Well, $10 billion, we're having a hard time convincing people to spend that. We lost $17 trillion to the COVID pandemic. The whole world was shut down, and that wasn't even really a terrible virus. It's very difficult to get people to focus 
And I think it's really important in the future. I mean, I teach this course because I want smart young people to realize we can't just make stuff. We can't just publish sequences. We have to think about what we're doing. We're entering an era where I think we're going to solve crazy problems. But I also feel that the stronger a technology is, the more, you know, I don't like the dual use thing because everything is a dual use. You can crush someone's head with a hammer right. or build a house. But as things move at the speed of light, they got real powerful. And I'd like to see us be more literate. I mean, the first step is I wish more people knew what the hell a gene was. <laughs> or, you know, the level of knowledge of biology is really thin. And it's hard to convince people it matters if they don't know what you're talking about on a fundamental level. There's a wonderful point in your book, uh, I was listening to it yesterday, in, in the final chapter where you were talking about um, making artificial dyes. And you have yeah. this whole long stretch, as I was listening to it, where you were talking about dyeing blue jeans. But I was just hearing jeans, like <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> the other jeans. I was like, what are these blue jeans? I, I'm not familiar with that. <laughs> Is that some new understanding of DNA? And then I finally figured it out. But the blue gene thing is what, I mean, what they're doing is, so dying blue genes is, is very destructive to the environment. It uses a lot of chemicals. It uses a lot of water we don't have. Ginkgo Bioworks and now a couple other companies are just trying to grow synthetic, brew it really, synthetic dye that you could use on genes that would be benign. And they're also trying to do this with fertilizer. And these things are compelling because they're going to make you healthy. They'll end up being cheaper and you won't be as sick as you are from the environmental waste that we live in. I think those things are compelling the way that the mRNA vaccines are compelling. If you know, it doesn't just have to be a vaccine. It can be food. You know, the way we make our food is crazy. Now we're starting to grow food that tastes like meat. Yeah. And there are a bunch of reasons why that matters. Some is for health, some is animal welfare, and some is we just can't put the pressure on the plant that we've been putting yeah. on agriculture. It's just too much. Yeah. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. You know, thinking about the pressure on the on the planet, that's one of the things that, you know, is a theme that runs through both Extra Life, the last project of mine, and, and through immortality, which I don't think people think about enough, which is, you know, if you basically we, you know, we, at, the, at the beginning of the 20th century, we had two million people on the planet. 
and two billion people on the planet. Two billion, and, yeah. and uh, you know, by the end of the century, we had eight billion. A um, hundred years later, and you know, people don't quite understand. They think that that's people having more babies and things like that, and it's really fundamentally not. Actually, people are now having far fewer babies than ever. It's people who are living longer. And yeah. you you have these, you know, situations where basically most people didn't have living great grandparents a hundred years ago and now a lot of people do. i you yeah. know, my kids got to know them their great grandparent lived to uh, hundred and four and their other great grandmother lived to a hundred, right? And so there's just a bunch of generations that were still alive for a period of time. And so when we make advances like this, whether we're just, you know, using mRNA vaccines to to cure cancer or whether we're actually tinkering with the mechanism of aging, we create this, you know, population problem. And and interestingly, like that is also part of the climate change problem, right? Like yeah. if we had if we had kept life expectancy where it was in 1900 and, and thus kept the population where it was roughly around that point, we really wouldn't have a climate crisis right now, even if we had industrialized at the same rate, because we just wouldn't have had enough people on the planet. There are lots of people who would argue why do we have all these people? Let's try to shut progress down. I don't think that's going to happen, and I don't think it needs to happen. The sun produces enough energy to power the world many times over, and we're going to get to the point where we're going to be able to use that, and we're not going to have to dig stuff out of the ground and burn it in order to get around. We're already moving in that direction, but we have to move much faster and further fusion, things like that seem so futuristic, they're going to happen. If you had told my grandfather, by the way, there's going to be a thing in your pocket, and I'm going to say to you, any song that you can think of, <laughs> and then press a button, and it'll be in your pocket, and you'll, they'd be like, what drug are you on? Yeah. And that's, like, that's not even an important thing, but yeah. it's a revolutionary thing. I, yeah. I think we will do that, but we need to sort of focus on the things that matter with our new talents. And I'm not sure we always do that. Yes, that is true. The other thing that I feel like we need to be talking about, again, in this kind of wider discussion, is whether through you know specific interventions, treating potential diseases like Alzheimer's or, or cancer or tinkering with aging, if you do have that longer health span, this is, this is one of the things that I talk about in the last third of immortality. Yeah. If you do have that longer health span, then, then what happens to society? Like what happens to society if people are fundamentally at full capacity when they're 75 or 80? Um, it's a problem. It's an obvious, if you teach at a university, this is a <laughs> trivial thing in real life, but you know, university professors don't want to stop teaching at 65. But if yeah. you're a young academic, you're like, when am I getting my chance to do this stuff? Yeah. It, it, and and that, I think, is multiplied throughout society. Yeah. Well, the other, you know, and in some ways we have done a version of this, which is we we invented something called childhood. <laughs> like like ch ch childhood, you know, as you know, was the most deadly time of your life, you know, particularly zero to five until you got much, much older. And people because their lives were shorter, would start reproducing much younger. Um, and as people, childhood became safer, and as people started living longer lives, we extended this period where you get to be an adolescent and you get to be a young adult and 
you were deferring the period of time before you have children. All that stuff was a secondary cultural adaptation to longer lifespan and, and reduced childhood mortality. And now we really have in, you know, lots, many sections of the world, this whole rhythm of life that was very different. You're not going off to the factory <laughs> or going off to the hunt at 12 because you have to go to school and you have to turn out, you have to learn who you are and do all these things that you get to sell it that my children are going through now, you know, in this kind of lovely way that is that is largely worked out. And so part of me thinks that as as we do, whether we push back the past the common boundary or if we just remain very healthy into 100, either way, we're going to have to kind of reinvent that third act. Uh, it, it's no one's going to want to go retire to the Scottsdale golf course because <laughs> there's going to be so much stuff that they're capable of doing. And, and right. we're going to have to figure that out. We are. I mean, we're going to have to make a lot of decisions as societies. And what I hope happens is that we actually make the decisions and they don't get made for us because we tend to be people who wait until decisions get made for us. And I think the last third of life is going to be a really tricky area because you're dealing with people who have very firm views of what they want and don't want out of life. And there's housing, there's jobs, there's feeling, you know, people talk again about AI, like it's going to take over. Well, whether it does or not, people are going to want to do something meaningful. They're going to want to get up in the morning and feel like they have some self-worth. Whether that's going to a job or not, who knows? But we need to figure out what is meaningful to a society that maybe doesn't have the kind of scarcity or disease that we face right now. And that's a big project. Is there, this is what I keep coming back to, like, like one of the things that that I've written a lot about in immortality and other things is is reminding people that along with vaccines and smartphones and the internet, we also have an, a very important tradition of innovation in terms of building new institutions, right? We had right. You, you couldn't eradicate smallpox without inventing something like the WHO, like that. True. There was no, you know, when Jenner was coming up with the smallpox vaccine, even if you could make it in quantities capable of like vaccinating the world, there was no institution capable of distributing it. And so we had yeah. to make this global world health organization. And so I keep coming back to like, is that what needs to be on our roadmap somehow? Like we need to develop some kind of institution that helps us as a society make these kinds of choices rather than just stumbling into them kind of haphazardly. I think we need to develop a lot of institutions that help. One simple example is before the COVID pandemic, um, some people, I was on a panel where we were trying to figure out how you make a universal influenza vaccine because those vaccines are really powerful in influenza is a the greatest threat we face in many ways. But here's the problem. If you go to one of the five pharmaceutical companies in America who gives you your mediocre flu vaccine every year and makes a bunch of money from it, and you say, hold it, we want you to spend $200 million developing a better vaccine. And then when you're done, it's going to be once in a lifetime or once every 10 years. How do you feel about that? There's no incentive to do that. So we need to have, and I, I think it maybe has to be an extra government, not federal bureaucracy, that helps innovate and helps make these things happen. Because it's crazy to think we could be protected from a really bad disease 
but we're not because it's not in the interest. It's not in the economic interest of the people who make those things. Yeah. Antibiotics. It's yeah. the same story, right? We're, we're developing these superbugs, you know, arguably the, the most important breakthrough of the last 70 years, penicillin and its descendants. And now we've kind of stopped developing. We had this flurry of innovation in the in the 50s and 60s and developed all these antibiotics. And now it's just the economics of it are terrible. And so yeah. we stopped. And that's one of those places where, you know, the the acceleration of drug discovery that AI is going to enable yeah. is is potentially really helpful there, where at least at least the development cycle could become a lot cheaper because I you can just run will. through all those combinations. But And you, I also think we're going to increasingly start looking at antibiotics as very specifically targeted drugs rather than these sort of broad spectrum things that kill what you want to kill. And by the way, are also killing a lot of things that are good for you. We won't need to do that anymore. Yeah. And that will be helpful. And I think ultimately those things will be less expensive, but we have to get there. And and again, there's a new agency in the US called ARPA-H. It's a, yeah. Yeah. It was a woman named Renee Wersigan runs it. I've known her a long time. She used to work at DARPA. And she's been given a bunch of money to go out and solve the big ticket health items in this country. And she's looking very broadly at all these things, trying to get people to come with crazy ideas. I asked her, well, like, how, how big a budget can people have? She said, you know, I don't want to be nickel and dimed. I mean, $100 million proposals are cute, but I need something <laughs> meaningful. So... When a federal official says that, I listen. Yeah. And yeah. I do think there are people out there who really want to use their imagination to solve these problems. But we have to, I think we're going to have to use alternate routes like ARPA-H, which isn't, they don't report to NIH. They really don't, they're their own thing. And it's hard to make institutions like that within the context of other institutions like governments. I'd like to get just back to the specifics of the mRNA yeah. technology briefly and just ask you, what do you think? So I share, you know, as, as with many people, the amazement at the achievement of the COVID vaccines and just the idea. I mean, that they, the, the other thing is not only did they kind of download the, 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 the genetic profile of the virus, you know, I always say like it took people five years just to figure out what HIV was, like just to figure right. out what the virus was before we even began to think about how to respond to it. And they knew, you know, the Internet was circulating the genetic profile of COVID uh, or of uh, SARS-CoV-2 in, in, you know, in a matter of days. But that they also had the blueprint. They basically had designed the vaccine over a weekend and it was just a question of testing it. It's amazing. Moderna had the vaccine that they basically use now in four days. Yeah. And I remember in the early 80s, David Baltimore came to the National Academy of Sciences. I was working at the Washington Post, and he gave a speech in which he said, it's going to take at least a decade to develop an AIDS vaccine. And everyone was like, what, are you crazy? How can it take that long? Well, it's been 40 years. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. haven't done it. And believe me, they've tried. Brilliant minds have spent endless years and money on it. So the idea that we were able to download these blueprints from the internet, instantly stitch them together, may infect cells, and then figure out a way to stop that spike protein, that, that is as close to magic as we're yeah. going to get. Yeah. So my other question, though, about mRNA is what, what do you think the next 
big leap forward? What what's what's the next thing that's going to come out of that platform where we're going to be like, uh, wow, this changes everything the way that the COVID vaccines did. They're working on a lot of different infectious diseases right now and having some promise, particularly influenza. But they're also looking very hard at certain cancers. And I think that's going to be really promising in the middle future. I mean, Feng Zhang, who is a CRISPR pioneer, just published a paper a week ago in which he basically took a protein and he found the protein by using AlphaFold, this AI program that solves protein folding issues. He took that and he found a particular protein that he can send around and it's sort of like a syringe. It will go to any cell in a human or other, in any animal that has uh, nucleuses, and it'll inject what you want it to inject into the cell. And it seems to do so with great accuracy and without any sort of off-target issues that CRISPR has struggled with. That has a potential for all sorts of treatments and preventatives. And that's just one thing that happened a week ago. I mean, I think mm. we're really moving rapidly, and and I think we'll see, I think we'll see a real assault on other infectious diseases and a real assault on some of the basic cancers over the next five years. It's a very interesting period in our history as a species, because on the one hand, you really can see a plausible path to, you know, the most significant reinvention of of our health ever, you know, can, you know yeah. if you think the last 200 years has been impressive, like watch the next 20. But on the other hand, the very same technologies that are enabling that potentially have these kind of existential risk problems, uh, you know, where you could imagine everything altogether being wiped out. Like we're going to live much healthier lives until we all die. <laughs> And you have just basically <laughs> said the syllabus for our class. Um, but the thing is, there are at least after people have said to me in that class and elsewhere, well, all these things you say that could maybe put guardrails on it, one person could still do a terrible thing. And I don't deny that. I happen to think if we had better gun control in the yeah. United States, fewer people would get killed in terrible ways. Um, it doesn't mean no one would ever be able to get a gun and shoot someone, but certainly we could do a lot about that. And I feel the same way with these existential threats. If we at least make an effort, we can educate people and we can cut down the possibilities. I don't think there's ever going to be zero possibility. On the other hand, we have had nuclear weapons yeah. for 70 years, and we did use them twice, yeah. but they haven't been used since. So it's there is some evidence that people won't do terrible things in when they have the opportunity to do so. And there's about 11 countries right now that have the opportunity to drop nuclear weapons. Yeah. And, and you know, maybe even more dramatically with bioweapons, right? We have, yeah. we, you know, we, we made an earlier intervention in, in stopping that arguably, and it, you know, it's not been perfect, but um, with the, the world could be filled with far more, you know, deployments of bioweapons yeah. than there has been, and so you make it's a really good our point. I mean, the Soviet Union made crazy amounts of anthrax and right. small, all sorts of terrible weapons that were then destroyed, but you didn't see those unleashed. A couple of people died in accidents, 
but they weren't used as weapons. So it is possible to prevent that from happening. And we know that. And I, I don't, the one thing I don't think we can do is say, this is too scary. Let's just turn off the spigot of progress. That isn't the way our species is built. And I'm, I'm kind of grateful for that. Yeah. No, I think I, I didn't necessarily agree with this recent pause on AI letter that was circulating yeah. around, but there is, there is an idea here, which I, I think arguably like we could learn how to explore a little bit more as a species, which is just how to go just a little slower with some things, yeah. you know, and we, we have so, I mean, the, <laughs> the analogy I always use when people talk about like, you know, computing, comparing it to Gutenberg or something like that is like, it took them a hundred years after the invention of the printing press to invent the index, like the paginated yeah. index. So they had a hundred years of just books. And then a hundred years later, they're like, oh, here's a cool feature. You could add page numbers and then you could look up the page you're looking for at the end, you know, with the topic. And that, now that's too slow, but when you develop new ideas and technology at a slightly slower pace, it gives you more yeah. time to kind of just explore what they're good at, figure out what the bugs are, figure out the ways in which they can be deployed, you know, in a harmful way. And then you move on to the next thing. Unfortunately, I think um, the capitalist system rears its ugly head here yeah. because, you know, the trick is Google has for a while had some pretty powerful AI and they didn't want to release it because they knew it would also be harmful and there were bugs. As soon as you get ChatGPT4 out there, we now see Google sitting back and saying, we have an existential threat. You know, it used to be like people would say to me, Google has a monopoly. And I'm like, well, they have a monopoly until I can type something into a different place that's better because I used to use something called AltaVista. And then Google came along and that was better. And if ChatGPT4 comes along, maybe that will be better. So they're now in a you know, there, there are many things, but they're also an advertising company, and this is an economic fight. And I don't think that's going to be good for anyone. You know, this is not how we should be moving forward with some of the most dramatically powerful tools in the history of humanity. Well, by discussing the AltaVista browser, um, which I used as well, that search engine, we have both revealed our age. Uh, yep. Sorry, <laughs> and we're yeah. both doing great. And, and, Girl, and people, can go into, another... <laughs> people can go into chat GPT and look up what AltaVista was. <laughs> but now that now that we're both, uh, you know, uh, elderly gentlemen, hopefully living for another 50 to 100 years. Um, anyway, I just have uh, loved this conversation, Michael. Uh, so excited yeah, for this too. new book and uh, look forward to chatting about this for the next century or so. Yeah, I'm going to make you come to our class next year, by the way. <laughs> okay, um, good. Anyway, it's been great to talk to you. This has been really fun. Michael Spector's new audiobook is called Higher Animals. To pick up a copy, follow the link in our episode notes. And Stephen Johnson's audiobook is Immortality, a User's Guide. You can buy a copy now by going to nextbigideaclub.supportingcasts.fm. There's also a link in the episode notes. It will be available on the Next Big Idea app starting on Tuesday. 
what is the next big idea app, you ask? It is the best idea delivery platform on the planet. We've partnered with hundreds of the world's leading authors to create 15-minute audio summaries of the very best new nonfiction books. If you'd like to give it a try and give Immortality a listen, sign up for a membership at nextbigideaclub.com and use the promo code IMMORTALITY at checkout for 10% off. Today's episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger. Sound design by Mike Toda. Special thanks to Anna at Pushkin for making it happen. The Next Big Idea is a proud member of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.